If you could turn with me to Exodus chapter 18, we're actually going to be looking at a couple, couple different passages this morning, Exodus 18 and Acts chapter 6, but we'll start with Exodus chapter 18, <clears throat> and we will pick it up in verse 12 of Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse 12. God's word says to us, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure... And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, and any hard cases they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country." So now, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 6, and what I think is a neat parallel to Exodus 18, and we're going we're gonna to think about both these passages this morning, uh, Acts chapter 6, specifically verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, either food or money. Verse 2, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So this is the reading of God's good and perfect word. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. Please bow with me in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sufficient. It is all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that it is God-breathed, without error, and Again, sufficient to help us, train us, equip us for every good work. And Lord, we know that the Word of God is is powerful. It's able to break the stony hearts, melt the hard hearts, revive the the broken heart, mend the broken hearts. Uh, It convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. It gives life, it gives joy, it gives peace, it gives wisdom. Lord, we again just thank you for the word, and we ask that your spirit would take the word of God this morning and work it mightily in each one of our hearts, Um, that you would give us eyes to see and understand the scriptures, that you would also, by your spirit, give us the strength to put it into practice, and that you would be glorified in that way, and we ask that, just as we read in Acts 6, that the word of God, increasing greatly, uh, Lord, that that would be... Uh, the end result of this morning as we look to your word. And Lord, I ask for help as I preach, that I would preach not in my strength, but that you would fill me with your strength, that I would not preach my words or my wisdom, that's, that's human, that's pathetic, but Lord, that your wisdom would be on display this morning, and again, that you would be glorified, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> Uh, So this is the third sermon in our our kind of mini-series here. We pushed the pause button, and we're thinking about uh, the future, the vision, the direction of our church for 2022 through 2024. We've been unfolding some highlights uh, from our our proposed ministry action plan uh, for 2022 through 2024. And so far, what we've done is we've laid out the vision. And the vision of Orangeville Baptist Church is that we desire, we have the singular purpose, a singular devotion to multiply disciples. To multiply disciples until all of Barry and Allegan County are saturated with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do this to the praise and honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the vision that we've been laying out for a couple of weeks. The question before us becomes, how do we get there, Right? If that's the vision, how do we get there? How, how do we accomplish that vision? How do we make it reality? And the, the simple but, but painful step is what we need to do is take a step back and look at reality, right? If, if this is where we're trying to get, then the first step we need to do is take a close look at our own church, our own family, and say, hey, are we doing it right? 
We need to shore up our foundation. We need to make an honest assessment of where we are currently. We need to face the facts. And that's a very biblical thing. If you think of Nehemiah, for example, uh, remember the city of Jerusalem lies in ruins. And Nehemiah is burdened for the glory of God and the good of his people. And Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem, and we read in Nehemiah chapter 2 that late at night he goes on this secret excursion with a few other men. He gathers up a few other men, and they go out, and Nehemiah 2.17 tells us that they inspect the walls. They inspect Jerusalem. And what Nehemiah is trying to do is he's trying to get a picture of reality, right? He's trying to get an honest assessment of this is what Jerusalem is at. This is where they are. This is what we're dealing with, right? And so he says in Nehemiah 2.17, he's completed his inspection. He turns to the men who are with him, and he says, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. You see what he's doing, Right? He's giving them an honest picture of of reality, of, of an honest assessment of Jerusalem, and it was bad, he says. The trouble we are in, Jerusalem lies in ruins, its gates burned. But he doesn't stop there. That'd be terrible if he stopped there. He goes on to say in Nehemiah 2, 17 and 18, he says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the the king had spoken to me. And, And the men said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Do you see the connection there between, and and even uh, what's on the screen behind me, between Nehemiah has this vision, right, of what Jerusalem can and must be. And how, how he says, he says to them, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So he has that vision of rebuilding Jerusalem, but first he gives an honest assessment of where they're at. And in doing so, uh, the people strengthen their wall, strengthen their hands, and come together to accomplish the mission. Another passage that I think about when we, when we think about facing reality and, 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 and looking at our own church and where we're doing well, where we're not, where we need to shore up the foundation and strengthen the church is Revelation. Revelations chapter 1, 2, and 3. In Revelations chapter 1 through 3, we are given a fantastic picture of Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing uh, pictures or visions of Christ ever in the scriptures. This, this awesome person that he is. I would encourage you sometime soon to read Revelation 1 and just get that big view of Christ. But in Revelation 1, we're told that Jesus is walking amongst the midst of seven golden lampstands. We're not left to wonder what those lampstands are. Those lampstands picture the seven churches of Asia Minor, right? And what Jesus is doing, because Jesus is the, it's his blood that purchased the church, and it's his word that, and his spirit that sustains the church, and he gifts the church with officers and, and all the other, the structure that goes along with it, is Jesus is inspecting the church. And you read Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, and, and Jesus gives his assessment of those churches. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. What's he doing? He's giving them a picture of reality. This is where you are. This, this is where you need to repent and shape up. This is, this is where you need to put things in order. And that, by the way, is the title of the message this morning, Putting Things in Order. 
And I stole that from the Apostle Paul, I don't think he'll mind. I stole that from Titus chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul writes to Titus, put things in order. He had left the church, some things were in disarray, some things were out of balance, some things were not right. And so he says to his protege, Titus, stay in Crete, right? Stay there and do what? Put things in order. And that's, that's what uh, the ministry action plan is all about. It's trying to put things in order. It's trying to get a, a true picture of, of, of where we're headed, but also where we currently are and the steps that we need to take to get there. Uh, this is so important, this idea of, of putting things in order is so important. We actually have made 2022 uh, we, we gave that year a theme, and the theme for 2022 is strengthen. We, we see so many ways that, that the Lord uh, would have us to grow and strengthen. Uh, we see so much importance in this that we dedicated a whole year in our ministry action plan to say, okay, we need to shore up here. We need to work here. We need to, this is reality. We need to work on these things. Because if we're going to be a church that multiplies disciples, we need to get these things in shape first. We need an honest assessment or inspection. That is why Ken Floyd, we hired Ken Floyd, right? We hired him as our consultant. He worked with our church for, I don't know, four to six months. He did a number of different things for us. He used several assessment tools. He used a thing called Know Your Community, which gave us a a demographic and psychographic tool for the 15-minute radius around us. It provided us with a ton of information about this community, the context in which God has lovingly placed us. He also used a tool called Know Your Church. That was an internal survey that measured six critical areas of the health of the church, uh, prayer, worship, fellowship, ministry, discipleship, evangelism. He even did, most of us I don't think know this, maybe you do, he did a secret guest survey. Uh, There were a couple, uh, you've heard of secret shoppers, right, where they kind of come in and they secretly are surveying how you do and then it gets submitted to the powers that be. Uh, Well, we had secret guest surveys come in. We had a couple secret guests come in and they kind of just watched what we do and how we do it and, you know, seeing it with new eyes. It's like when you own a, when you buy a house, first you see all the things that are wrong with it and you're going to fix. Then five years later, you never fix any of those things and you don't see them anymore, right? That's reality, right? Uh, and so having fresh eyes come in and, and just see some of those things was very, very valuable for us. Ken also interviewed roughly 20 to 25 families in our church uh, with a lot of different questions for them to get a feel for where we're doing well, where we're not doing well as a church. So using those tools, Ken put together, was able to identify a number of challenges that face us as a church. And the first one was discipleship. Did we stop working? So the next one is, oh, did I do that? Did I do that or you do that? That was you. Oh, maybe it was me. Okay. So the first step, so if you can think of the ministry action plan for 2022 through 2024, if you can think of that as a bridge. So there's the vision, right? We want to multiply disciples. Then reality is this is where we are. The ministry action plan is building that bridge to connect reality to the vision. This is how we get there. And one of the things that Ken Floyd helped us identify where we need to do a lot of shoring up and fixing up and putting things in order is discipleship. In fact, as a church, we scored 65.4 on that. 
That's out of 100. I wish I was out of 70. That's out of 100. 65.4. That's why two weeks ago I preached on discipleship and shared with you that we need to define, develop, and deploy disciples. The next one is organization. Everyone's favorite word, favorite thing to think about, right? Organization, structure. Uh, And and Ken Floyd identified that a critical need is having the right people in the right places. Ken said we need to consider the training and or possible hiring of additional staff to help facilitate our urgent discipleship needs, that we need to be evaluating what we're doing and if it's working, if it's not working, and even why we do what we do. Is it the most effective way to do the most good to the most people? The next one is equipping, uh, which actually in the survey was, was identified as ministry. On that, we scored a 68.4, so a little bit higher than discipleship. Um, the idea here is if, if we're going to make and multiply disciples, then we need the entire church body on board. We need everyone equipped and empowered using their gifts, their talents, their personalities, everything that God has made them to be to focus towards and work towards that mission. That it can't be done by a handful of people. But we need everyone involved in every way uh, that they can for the glory of God and the good of his church. Then the last one was multiplication. This is where we scored the worst. On this we scored 63 out of 100. Uh, And so that's why we've made that the last step that we need to uh, multiplication. Or another word for that is evangelism. So So I hope that gives you a a big picture of what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it, why we're preaching these messages because I believe that our vision is very biblical. Our vision is we want to multiply disciples, right? That's extremely biblical. That's the movement of God and we want to join in on that movement but as we seek to do that, we need to identify our reality, where we're at, where we need to shape up and that's, that's what we've been doing and these are the steps, the bridge, the map, to help us get to where the Lord, we believe, is calling us to do. So please notice a couple other things about that bridge analogy with me. One, notice that they're not random. That I'm, not, I'm not up here giving random messages about random things. That these are all tied to exactly what you see in front of you, reality and vision. That they build on each other in a very logical way to help us be as effective as we can be for God's glory. I think I've explained that a bit, but just to get that idea that our vision is to multiply disciples. So we started with what is a disciple, right? We need to define disciples. How do we deploy them? And by the way, as we think about discipleship, there is no greater care or loving thing that we can do as a church than to develop disciples. Amen? That's the most caring thing we can do. That's the most godly and biblical thing that we can do is develop disciples. Jesus was the master at loving others and caring others and serving for others and teaching others. And what's discipleship? Discipleship is increasingly over time being conformed to the lifestyle and doctrine of Jesus Christ. If we're going to care for one another and love for one another and have a, have, a, have a family like we just sang about that knows each other and serves each other and, and encourages each other, then each one of us here needs to be increasingly more like Christ, yes? And as we pursue him and become more like him, our church will be filled with his love and his grace and his power and his spirit and his, his compassion and so on, right? That's why we start with discipleship. 
then we need to think about what are hindrances that get in the way of us, of us doing this, what's working, what isn't, where do we need to change, where do we need to adapt, who needs equipping, who's sitting on the sidelines and needs to get involved, how can we foster and encourage in every member ministry, that's, that's what organization and equipping are all about. Then that last one is multiplication, and, and I hope you can see why that one's kind of that last step, because we don't want to be multiplying our mistakes, Right? We don't want to be multiplying everything we're not doing right. We want to get things in order, put things in order, discipleship, organization, equipping, and then we want to multiply that out because if this is a Christ-centered place filled with his love and his care and his compassion and his power and his spirit, we want that for everybody else. We don't want to keep that for ourselves. We want to multiply that out uh, and however the Lord leads us to do that. So I hope you can see that that map builds that way, right? How it, it's these steps of progression towards the vision. Secondly, I would, I would ask that you notice about uh, the ministry action plan, the bridge, is that we're holding this plan with open hands for God, towards God. And what I mean by that is it's, it's not written in stone. This isn't, this isn't Pastor Andrew standing up here saying, this is going to happen this way or else, right? That's bad pastoring. Pastors don't drive, they lead. And if you wonder what the difference is, I, I can illustrate that for you. I came across this image quite a few years ago by uh, Herschel York. He's one of the professors I had in school a few years ago, and, and he talks about this. He says, on one of my trips to Israel, I once saw a man behind a flock of sheep, driving them down the road by holding out two long sticks. You can picture that, one on either side, and attempt to force them to stay together in front of him, you know, trying to keep him in that way, and, and he's driving them. Herschel says, puzzled, I'd never seen a shepherd lead his sheep like that. He asked his guide, why is that shepherd driving his sheep that way? I've never seen that before. And his guide answered this. He said, that's not a shepherd. That's a butcher. He has bought those sheep, and now he has to drive them to the slaughterhouse. And listen to what the guide said. The guide said, those sheep won't follow him because they don't know them. He can't lead them, so he has to drive them. That's the difference. And that's why I say, as, as a pastoral team, uh, we're coming before you and trying to lead this out. We're not driving this. We're not butchers. <laughs> Does it feel like that sometimes? I hope not. Uh, but we're... We're seeking to lead where we believe the Lord is leading. So I'm standing up here doing that, trying to cast a vision of where God wants us to go and how we can get there and praying that the Lord will strengthen our hands like he did for Nehemiah. But I'm, we're doing that with an open heart, with open hands before God. We're saying all along the way to, to the Father, please change this plan any way you need to. Interfere with this plan any way you need to. Do whatever you need to do with this plan so that we're joining your movement, right? God's on the move to glorify his name by multiplying disciples all around the world. We wanna join that and be a part of that. So if there's part of our plan that gets in the way of that, oh my word, Lord, change that and change it now, right? That's, that's the vision, that's the drive uh, going with, with all of this. I just use the word drive. That's, that's where we're, we're trying to, to lead uh, with the Lord's help and for his glory. <clears throat> Another analogy that might help with that is if you just think of these sermons as me being a farmer. My dad would appreciate this because he grew up on a farm. But I'm just trying to be a farmer and I'm trying to plant seeds. Just planting seeds with these sermons, planting ideas, planting thoughts, 
hoping and trusting that the Lord, over time, as we, uh, in his power and his strength, obey him and follow him, that he will bring the harvest. So think of the sermons that way, just planting ideas, planting thoughts, planting uh, biblical concepts, trusting that the Lord will bring a harvest. <clears throat> Make sense? So that was my introduction. How's that for a, a nice, short, succinct introduction? Huh? So Exodus 18. And this morning, what we're going to talk about is that second pillar or leg of the bridge, everyone's favorite word, organization, right? And I can probably already hear it, maybe I can already feel it, right? Well, that's boring, right? Organization. I didn't, I didn't come here this morning to hear, hear you preach about organization. Uh, and, and admittedly, there are many other issues in the Bible that have priority over organization, right? Like the sufficiency of Scripture or the supremacy of Christ, the deity of Christ, salvation by faith alone and, and not by works, just, just to name a few. But I ask that you would just listen this morning and, and hear this, that just because this topic may not be the most important thing in all the world, it is still important. Organization is very important because God is a God of what? Of order. And you look at creation and you see order, not chaos, and when God made us in his image, he, he called us to have dominion over creation, which is to say to order it, to shape it uh, as God's good and wise structures. And I find that very, very interesting. Organization may not sound very glamorous, but I, I hope you can see that it's crucial to everything. In fact, it's far more vital than we often realize. Every, every building in the world needs to have structure, right? Or it does what? It falls down. Our own bodies have structure, right? If we don't have a skeletal uh, framework within us, then we would be this weird soup of whatever, like skin and organs, right? Like skeletal structure is necessary. Without it, we would collapse. Quite frankly, without structure, without organization, everything falls apart, Organization is the difference between success and failure, the difference between conflict and peace, discouragement and enthusiasm. And if I can even plug that into Christmas, Christmas is all about Jesus and the hope that he brings because he's going to bring things to order, right? So even Christmas has a touch of the organization theme. We, we live in a world that's chaotic. We live in a world that's disordered and broken because of sin, we live in a world where people are craving harmony. They crave peace. It's so rare. And that's why organization is such a blessing, and the work of Christ brings order. It will bring all things to their proper fitted end. And that's why we rejoice in Christmas and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And that's also what brings us to Exodus 18, where Moses learns the lesson of organization. As we read through that, I'm sure you picked up on there's a pretty big problem uh, the nation of Israel, which is roughly anywhere from, scholars say, a million to two million strong. So that's a lot of people. A million to two million people in the desert. Now, what's going to happen when you have a million to two million people living close quarters in the hot desert? Conflict, right? That never happens, right? We never have conflict as Christians, do we? There's conflict, so Moses is a judge, and he seeks to settle those disputes. Verse 13, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Wow. Talk about a logjam. That's a logjam, right? Everything is bottlenecking into the one-man show 
Moses. By the end of the day, there's still no end in sight. Morning till evening, they're all around him, trying to get their cases settled and disputes settled so that there's peace. Jethro, kind of outside looking in, sees what's going on, and he is baffled by it. He says in verse 14, when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, Jethro said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? That's, that's the scariest word in the whole verse, alone. And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. So Jethro is not denying the importance of what Moses is doing. What was baffling to him was that only Moses was doing it, that it all depended upon him. He, he's basically saying, how is this possibly the best way to be conducting leadership? And if this is what you're doing all day long, what else isn't getting done that needs to get done? Well, Moses uh, is happy to explain the situation in verses 15 and 16. He says, well, the people come to me to inquire of God. They have a dispute. I decide between one person and another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Jethro, however, rightly rebukes It says in verse 17, just straightforward, speaking the truth in love, Moses, what you are doing is not good. Verse 18, you and the people with you, notice what he says, not just Moses, but Moses, you and the people will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And when it says, wear yourselves out, it's quite literally, fading you will fade, or withering, you will wither. It's talking about exhaustion and burnout and discouragement. And again, not just for Moses, but Moses and all the people will be disheartened. And so immediately we see the importance of good structure, right? Of good, good organization. Because if you have bad structure, if things aren't put in order, you have discouragement. You have exhaustion. You have burnouts, you have log jams. It leads to people's days and time and energy being wasted. So that's the problem, right? Moses, all by himself, is trying to judge uh, the, the situations, the conflicts uh, that are arising with the people. And it's led to discouragements. So the solution, is a good, and good consultant, he not only sees the problem, but he sees the solution. He offers up the solution in verses 19 through 23. You can essentially break it down into two parts. The first part is, is Moses needs to continue representing the people before God and teach them God's word. And, and if the people can hear God's word themselves, many disputes could be settled immediately. But secondly, Moses was to delegate responsibility uh, to other men. Not just any men but men of particular character who would be available to take the less complicated cases and thus ease the burden of Moses and the people. And you can see that the list of characteristics needed there on verses 19 through, through 22. They need to be men of ability. They couldn't be novices or amateurs. They had to be mature. They needed to be competent. They needed to be godly. Imagine if you have people judging cases and they wrestle with fear of man stuff. Right, And they don't fear God, but they fear people. That's a recipe for disaster. Uh, so they needed to have God's glory and honor foremost in their hearts. They needed to be men who were trustworthy, people who know the truth and how to live it out consistently. You don't have to worry that they say one thing one day and then something else entirely the next day. They were trustworthy men. 
They were also honorable, who hate bribes, they're incorruptible. Love of money was not uh, their issue. They had a love for God and his word. They also had to be a representative, representing the good cross-section of the community. And Moses, by delegating leadership uh, to such capable persons, Moses would now be freed to lead the people in other ways, such as prayer, worship, teaching. If a case would come along that was too difficult for anyone else, he could handle that one. So that's, that's the solution that Jethro comes up with, and it's pretty sharp. Uh, Jethro is, for all intents and purposes, the world's first recorded management consultant. He's a good guy. Well, what's the result? What's the result of his solution, of putting it into practice? We see it in verse 23. Jethro says, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. That's a great verse. The result of such organizations and Moses would have relief and the people's morale would be boosted. That's what's called a win-win. Moses will have relief, his load will be lightened, he will not wear himself out, and the people on the plus side will be cared for, the people will be, have peace, they'll have what they need, and they'll be able to coexist along each other. So the, the story of, of Exodus 18 and Israel getting organized is, is raises an obvious question. Now, how's that apply today, right? What's that look like uh, for the New Testament church today? Are there principles that, from Exodus 18 that apply to today? And absolutely there are. Absolutely they are. Big, big time applications. <clears throat> see if it works for me this time. You pull up the one that says authority on Josiah's laptop, I think. Oh, that's right. I can't see it. That's right. I forgot. Josiah told me that it's not on there. So hopefully, yeah. So Jesus is the supreme authority of the church. He exercises his authority over the church by the spirit and the word. And as the supreme authority over the church, he has given the church very clear directions and very clear instructions on the nature and order of the church. He's not left us to wonder how we should organize the New Testament church. What I want you to see this morning is that the instructions Jesus gives for the church are very, very similar to the instructions we find in Exodus 18, where just as Israel needed Moses to provide spiritual care and biblical instruction. So God has given to his church certain men to provide biblical care and instruction. And just as this work was, was too much for Moses alone to handle, so it is too much for a single person to handle on their own in the church today. So this is why the Bible teaches what's referred to as a plurality of elders. <clears throat> So it starts with the authority of Christ, and for his church and the structure of his church, uh, he teaches a plurality of elders. Don't get thrown off by the word elders. The word elder does not just simply mean old. It also often in the New Testament becomes a, a technical term for office and for pastor. In fact, specifically, the biblical word for elder means one who rules or judges. And what were the men doing in Exodus 18? They're what? They're judging and ruling and leading and governing the people. So you begin to see a parallel between Exodus 18 and how Christ structures his church. 
he sets up the church needs to have a plurality of elders who will lead and govern and rule in accordance with the authority and the teachings of Christ and his word and his spirits. So please hear this. The biblical evidence is overwhelmingly on the side of, of multiple elders, not solo pastor. You find a lot of churches that have solo pastors. That is not biblical. The biblical pattern is a multiplicity of elders. Without exception, you guys can check me on this. Please check me on this. Without exception, every time the New Testament mentions the government of a local church, in other words, it's organization, right? It's structure. The leadership structure is multiple elders, plural, elders. There is not a single example in the entire New Testament of a solo pastor of a congregation with one pastor. And just like in Exodus, these elders cannot be just any person you find on the street, like, hey, you want to be an elder? But they need to find or fit certain prescribed godly characteristics detailed in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And by the way, in Titus 1.5, when Paul says to Timothy, put things in order, what's the first thing he tells him to do? Appoint elders. And what do those elders need to be like? It tells you in Titus 1, 6 and following. So you've seen the, the connections between Exodus 18 and, and the New Testament church, I hope. A plurality of elders, a multiplicity of elders is very wise. Uh, for no one person is omnicompetent, as much as you might like to think we are, we're not. No one person possesses all the gifts necessary for leading a congregation. If you can think of it like this, in fact, do I have my keys? I do have my keys on me. But I have a Gerber, a Gerber knife. Uh, it's not a Swiss Army knife. It's very similar to a Swiss Army knife. But if you can think of elders as a, as a Swiss Army elders, right? Where each one has its function, each one has its gifting, its use. And one man by himself cannot lead a church all by himself. A ministry, if it's like that Swiss Army knife, you have different elders, different pastors, who by themselves lack balance and by themselves have weaknesses but, but have, have also have strengths and so those elders can work together like a Swiss army knife works together to accomplish the tool or the purpose before you. So, so some men are detail men, others are big picture, vision men. Some can preach, others are great at one-on-one -on -one teaching but all of, them, all of them together like a Swiss army knife contribute to the way the body of Christ works. Also, through a multiplicity of elders, they're wiser together, right? One person by himself might have some wisdom, but a bunch of men together filled with the word, filled with the spirit, have more wisdom. Proverbs 15.22 says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they secede. So often as a pastor, you'll encounter situations that seem far beyond you. You don't know what to do, and you need counsel, you need help, and having a multiplicity of elders to come alongside each other creates wisdom. It also creates balance. It also lightens the, the workload. There, there's a lot more we could say there. But what I hope you're seeing is the connection between Exodus 18 and elders in the life of the New Testament church. And if you can picture a church body organized by a group of godly spiritual men who walk with Christ, who help the body flesh out the details of the Christian life, who attend to the doctrine of the church, who maintain the, the discipline of the members, who give direction and oversight to the church, that church 
will be better positioned to be cared for, loved for, and to be on mission and to be focused on what the Lord would have them to do. So what I, I, again, what I hope you're seeing that the heart of our church's development, at the heart of putting things into order, at the heart of multiplying disciples, at the heart of being a church that's healthy and being effective is structure, organization. Everyone's favorite word, right? Organization. Bad organization, bad structure leads to discouragement, burnout, discord, good structure, good organization, uh, leads to a church, leads to a family that's caring for one another, serving one another, aware of one another, and set free for the ministry. So Acts 6, turn with me to Acts 6, <clears throat> and we'll see how this fleshes out in Acts chapter 6. <clears throat> and we're going to use the same outline. In Acts 6, we see the problem, we see the solution, and we see the results. In Acts chapter 6, we have a problem. Uh, the problem is the church is ready to split, right? There's a major complaint. Uh, some of the Jews, Jewish, uh, I'm sorry, some of the widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. And again, that daily distribution could be food, it could be money. It's just meeting the needs of those widows. However, their needs were not being met. So there's this complaint which is to say there's disunity. There are people not being cared for in the body of Christ. The church is starting to fracture. It's a major problem. The church for which Christ died and shed his blood is not united. It needs to be united. So there's a very serious problem there. The solution is very, very interesting. Watch, watch what happens in verse 2. The 12, which is to say... Uh, the apostles who also function as, as the elders of that church, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples. So they call the church together, which some estimate to be roughly twenty to 25,000 strong. So the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and say to them, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So you see the solution? The solution is everyone's favorite word today, organization. The solution is structure. Our structure isn't right. Our structure isn't meeting the needs of the people. There's fracture. There's disunity. We need to restructure. That's what they're saying. We need to rethink this. The way we're doing it isn't working. We need to reorganize and, and, and get things in the right place, get things into order. So what they do is they create the office of deacons. That's what Acts 6 is. It's the prototype deacon. It's where we learn much about the office of deacons and what they do and why we have deacons. And they, they tell us in verse 3, the qualifications of deacons, much like Exodus 18, it couldn't just be any random Joe Schmo. They had to meet certain qualifications. First, they had to be full of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 3, uh, they also had to be men of good reputation. They also had to be full of wisdom. <clears throat> so those three characteristics were very, very important. And those deacons played a crucial role in the life of the church. If you're ever wondering, what in the world are deacons? And what do deacons do? Read Acts 6. In Acts 6, you'll see three things that deacons do. Number one, 
deacons care for the material and physical needs of the church, right? That's straightforward. Some of the widows of the church, their needs are not being met. There's a complaint. There's disunity. And so the deacons are put together to care for, to meet those material and physical needs of the widows. That's a wonderful thing. There's a glaring physical need, and it needs to be met. I forgot to put that up there. Secondly, the deacons unify the church. Why do I say that? I say that because the deacons of Acts 6 had a problem to solve. Greek widows were overlooked in the distribution of food and money, but the problem was not just food. The problem was fracturing, and so the the church appoints deacons to head off that disunity and to unify the church, right? So deacons play a crucial role of bringing unity to the church. Deacons must be those who love the church. They cannot be those who are unhappy with the church or are given to complaining or unthankfulness about the church. They, they are those who lend a hand to solve problems before they cause division. Deacons are those who foster unity in the church. They are those who are concerned for others. They're aware of others. It's, it's easy, way too easy for people to fall through the cracks, and deacons are attentive to that danger. Uh, they welcome visitors. They engage outsiders. They help the lonely. They strive to see that every member understands uh, the important uh, role and place they have in the body. And as they do that, deacons accomplish a third part. The first part was they help meet uh, the physical and material needs of the church. The second one is deacons unify the church. The third role of a deacon is they release the church for effective ministry. And I, I love this part. Uh, deacons release the church for effective ministry. You say, where do you see that? How are you getting that out of Acts 6? So I see it in two ways. One... I think the deacons get others involved. Remember I shared with you that the church in Acts is probably twenty to 25,000 members strong. That's a lot of people. And I don't think seven men are going to meet the needs of 25,000 people. That's yeah, just a guess, but I don't think so. <laughs> right? And I, I think this is Christian sanctification. I think this is a fair application of the text, uh, looking at the text. But I think it's very very, very possible that these deacons organized many other Christians alongside them. They created teams uh, so that they would be able to get the work done. They mobilized, in other words, deacons mobilized the people to get the work done. I can't remember if that's where I threw that in there or not. I'll just do it this way. Oh, uh uh-oh. This is why I don't normally do this. It goes badly. Okay, so deacons, the third thing that they do is they mobilize the church, they release the church for effective ministry. And one way they do this is by creating teams of people. I think it's very, very realistic to say in Acts chapter 6 that these deacons who were appointed to meet the needs of these, of these widows who were being met, that they formed teams around them uh, to go and help those, those who were in need and make sure no one was falling through the crack. Now that's very, very instructive because remember I shared with you that one of Ken's recommendations for our church to improve our body care, to improve and make sure no one's falling through the cracks, that our discipleship pathway is 
working, is we need to consider training and or hiring additional staff. And last time I preached, I, I talked about two potential hires that we're asking you to think about and pray about and, and talk about, a director of worship and tech and communications, and also a pastor of family and discipleship. But what if we also considered uh, something like what well, I think we see in Acts chapter 6, where deacons organize teams to get others involved? So you could have a deacon of grounds and buildings or a deacon of childcare, and a deacon of the resource center or a deacon of ordinances or a deacon of member care or a deacon of finances. Really the sky's the limit. And I think what we see from Acts chapter 6 practically is that there's a need, right? If you look at Acts 6, there's a need. Some people's needs are not being met. So what does the church do? They go, okay, we need to, we need to get some deacons who will meet that need right, who will, who will help get that need. And so I think practically speaking, whenever a need arises that seems to require attention, a church should feel the freedom to create a deacon position and look for a member whose current services and character are particularly suited to that task. On the flip side of that, whenever a deacon position seems to outlive its usefulness, I think we should feel free to discontinue that position as a way of conserving the energy of the body and pruning the ministry branches that are no longer needed or no longer bearing fruit. The bottom line of what I'm saying, if, if you're tracking with me, is that the church has a problem. The church finds qualified deacons to work that problem, lets those deacons form and lead teams of volunteers who love serving Christ together, and that sets the church free. It mobilizes the church. It facilitates the mission. And that's what I'm trying to picture there. If you have a church that's founded upon the Word of God, Christ and the Scriptures and the Spirit, then you have godly men who meet the qualifications of Scripture, then you have uh, deacons who help uh, those elders do the work that they're doing, they facilitate the mission, then that empowers the church body, that sets the church body free uh, to, to have the Word of God spreading inwardly and outwardly. And so that's what all this is. And I'll explain this more next week, because this is part one, next week is part two. <laughs> It probably should have been half of what it is, but it is what it is at this point. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's the picture. That's the idea. A church where you have qualified deacons who are wise, they're spirit-filled, they're godly. These men are creating teams. Uh, they, they, they serve the church in a way that sets the church free uh, for ministry. So what does that have to do with the elders, right? What about those elders we were talking about, the plurality of elders? And that's where the deacons play a crucial role also. The deacons set the church free for effective ministry, not just by mobilizing the church body, but by freeing up the elders to do what the elders are supposed to do, which is what, according to our text? Pray and the word, right? Preaching the word. If you can think of Aaron and her holding up the hands of Moses, deacons are holding up the hands of the elders to do the work they are called to do. If you just think about it this way, how can elders, the pastors, attend to deep spiritual needs if they are swamped dealing with everything else? I'll say it this way. In any church, there are many, many things that need to be done. It's tempting to say to the leadership, do a little bit of everything. But that leads to disaster because when leaders do a little bit of everything, they accomplish absolutely what? Nothing. The church is built upon the word of God. Leaders must devote themselves to the study and teaching of God's word uh, for the congregation. Nothing should be allowed to take place, uh, take the place of that central. 
priority. Again, if elders do a little bit of everything, we're back to Exodus 18, and there's discord, there's discouragement, there's, there's burnouts. So deacons are crucial to the life and health of the church. While I'm thinking of it, it just, just kind of came to my mind. I'd like to honor our deacons. We don't, we don't do that enough. Um, and I'm saying that, I'm thinking, maybe they're not even here. Andy's, Andy's here. Andy wants to stand up. Where's Randy? Is Randy here? Is he out there? If Randy is out there, please stand up. I don't think Bill's here. Randy's out there. Randy's, Randy's serving. I don't think, is Bill here? I haven't seen Bill. Chuck? I don't think Chuck's here. Is Chuck here? But Andy, come on, stand up. We want to show our love for you. Just this one deacon this morning that we want to show our love for and our honor for. <laughs> <clears throat> very, very thankful for all of our deacons, thankful for three more who are coming on uh, in January. But deaconing is hard work. And, I mean, they do a lot that gets unseen. I'm very, very thankful for them. It's fascinating to me that Jesus was a deacon in the ultimate sense. Mark 10:45, where it says Jesus came not to be served but to serve. That's the word deacon right there. Serve, deacon. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus says, deaconing service is so important, I'm going to make it an office in my church. That's a crucial role, a crucial role. So what's the result? What's the result of the church getting organized and getting things in place? The result is verse 7, and I love verse 7. It says, the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples did what? What's the same verse 7? Multiplied greatly. What's our vision? to multiply disciples. How does that happen? Organization, right? Putting things into order, recognizing needs, recognizing where we're falling short, recognizing where we need to, to make things right, and doing that so that we can get on board and fulfill the mission. If, when we organize right and structure right, it, it re results in things are in order, it results in the church uh, being on mission for Christ. The church is now unified, the crisis is averted, the widows are cared for, the ministry of the Word of God goes forth, disciples greatly increase. Isn't that incredible? That's incredible, and that's what we desire and pray for and long for in our church. That's why we have this ministry action plan. So that's why I started this message talking about some of the problems, some of the weaknesses of our church, like discipleship and organization and ministry and, and one-anothering and, and multiplication. If, if we are going to achieve the vision before us, we need to face these problems head-on. We must see them as opportunities. We need to see problems as opportunities. Problems give us an opportunity to examine our ministry, discover where we need to make changes. Everyone's other favorite word, change, right? And when those problems are met with wise, godly, decisive action, the result is the needs of the people are met, the word of God increases, and disciples are multiplied. Amazing, amazing Amazing. What a lesson Acts 6 and Exodus 18 have for us as a church. The early church is creative. They adjust their organization to meet their needs. They don't say, man, we've never done that before, right? They see a need and they think, man, how can we meet that? And they create the office of deacons. They saw the problem as an opportunity to adjust their procedures and the Lord blesses and the word of God increases. Orangeville Baptist Church, 
are we willing to do the same? That's the question, right? Are we willing to do the same? Organization is a difference between success and failure. It's a difference between conflict and peace. It's a difference between discouragement and organization. Without proper organization, how will the needs of the people be met? Without proper organization, how will the word of God increase? And without proper organization, how will disciples multiply? They won't. If you can think of it this way, picture a road in your mind. Uh, Think of the church like a car. So you picture a car driving down the road, right? The car is the church. The road is structure. If that road is like a lot of roads in Michigan and has potholes or has no straight line getting anywhere, you have to like make 20 turns to get three miles in the direction you're trying to get, right? Like when from our house, from Delton, trying to get to Plainwell, like you got to like make all these crazy turns, right? There's like no direct way there. The structure is bad. <laughs> um, if you can picture the church as the car and organization as that road, then what we're trying to do is straighten those roads, straighten that structure, get the structure in place so that we as a church can hit the gas, right? So that the word of God can multiply and so that disciples can multiply. And it's exciting to think about. Good structure is vital to maximal effectiveness. Good structure is vital to being the healthiest, strongest church we can be. <clears throat> I'll wrap it up with this. I know it's been, it's been a long sermon, huh? No, it hasn't. It hasn't been as long as I thought it was. <laughs> I can keep going. I just broke the cardinal rule, by the way, of preaching. I did this. I should tell you the joke that my dad used to do. He used to take his watch off and put it right there. And he'd say, that means absolutely nothing. <laughs> not, not enough of you are laughing at that joke, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push forward. <clears throat> if you heard nothing else this morning, please hear this. Organization facilitates the mission. Organization facilitates the mission. The ascended Christ has structured his church to fulfill the mission. And what's the mission? To multiply disciples. We didn't create that. Jesus gives that from the scriptures. We're trying to join that movement. His vision is multiply disciples and structure organization facilitates it. It it mobilizes it. That's why everything we've said this morning has been so important. That's why Jesus wants us to put things in order. Jesus has structured his church in, in that way so that we can be multiplying disciples. And when we get that out of joy, and out of whack, we are not effective at doing that as we can be. A plurality of elders leading the ministry, a plurality of deacons facilitating the ministry, and a congregation doing the ministry. It's not one person doing all the work or a handful of people doing all the work. It's organizing and equipping and involving all of the church body in all of the ministry. The result is people's needs are met. The word of God is increased. Disciples are multiplied. Organization facilitates the mission. And hear this the most powerful weapon in the hands of our almighty Lord for the destruction of Satan and his kingdom is a church that is organized.
It's a church uh, that is facilitated and structured uh, in the way the Lord would have it to be done. The most powerful weapon in the hand of the Lord to destroy Satan is a healthy local church. And that's what the plan is all about. And so you should have, I hope you got this as, as you walked in. Uh, it says year one. If you didn't get this, they might be on the table out there, or maybe they're, they're out there on your, on your way out. But this, this highlights, remember two weeks ago, we gave some highlights on discipleship. If one of our initiatives is discipleship, we had a dozen or so initiatives. Well, this is the next one. We're talking organization. What does that look like? What are some initiatives that are part of our ministry action plan uh, to help uh, focus and accomplish that mission? And in two weeks from now, I'll, I'll do equipping, and three weeks from now, I'll do the multiplication one. Uh, but you can see it talks about why strengthen, but then it talks about how can we strengthen our ministry. And some of these things we've already shared, uh, and some of these things overlap. Uh, but you can see, number one, uh, we want to consider hiring a pastor of family and discipleship talking organization, right? The pastor of family discipleship would do a lot more than this, uh, but this person would help organize our growth groups and member care, also get a men's ministry constructed and off the ground. We talked about getting things in order, and there's some things we're just not doing well. One thing we're not doing well is men's ministry, men's discipleship, and we also, also can do exponentially better with growth groups, and we just need to focus in on that and organize those things better. Secondly, consider hiring a director of worship, tech, and communication uh, for a couple of reasons already shared before, but for this morning in particular organization, this person could help us organize and facilitate church communications. Ken Floyd came down pretty hard on us and said, one of the most glaring things we don't do well is clear and redundant communication. And also that applies not just internally, but externally, outwardly. Also, this director would work with us to help us develop a strategy for how to communicate the gospel to our community through social media, through our website, and things like that. I said this a couple weeks ago, but outside of, of personal one-to-one, as you kind of move about and have your being and at your workplace and your families, as you're at Walmart or Menards, wherever it is that you are, outside of personal relationships, the most effective way uh, to get the word out today is social media. It's online. It's website stuff. And we're not doing well there. That is not our front door. Our front door is virtual. It's online. And we need to do better there. Third, uh, consider creating a woman's ministry director position to make sure the women in our church are being equipped. Again, we've looked and we've realized, my word, we fall short there. We need to do much better there. Uh, and the proposal with that is this would be an officer position, much like we have. Uh, we have the discipleship hour superintendent. We have, we have those offices that every year we vote on. Uh, it could also be, in keeping with what I shared about deacons, that could be a deaconess position. And again, I'm just, I'm just planting seeds, planting ideas, things, things to think about. Also, number four, consider creating a coordinator of outreach and connections to oversee church evangelism efforts. We'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but also help us fold guests into the life of the church. Again, uh, this would be an officer position or it could be a deacon position. But these, these are areas where, we're, again, we're seeing, hey, we're not doing well there. We need to reorganize. We need to rethink this. Number five, super exciting, creating a church policy handbook. And all the church goes, yes, right? Church policy handbooks, that's just the most exciting thing out there, right? 
uh, but very, very important. We've recognized some areas where we, again, just don't have clear direction, clear structure. And if we don't have that, it leads to frustration. And so things such as how we handle our finances, uh, ministry job descriptions for every position, office in our church, you know, realize we don't have those. We need those. Uh, we need to think about uh, how we do a bunch of different things that are, that's only a few of the things that are there. Uh, number six, creating a prayer team. Number seven, um, a prayer calendar. Number eight, evaluating, determining improvements or a guest connection process. Number nine, developing a culture of celebration. Uh, number 10, on the flip side, uh, continue promoting spiritual health and gifts assessments and helping people determine their next steps. So we'll talk about more of that in a couple weeks. Number 11, our counseling ministry. Uh, number 12, evaluating and strengthening all ministries in light of our mission, vision, core values. Uh, number 13, creating a leadership pipeline for every area of ministry. How can we be multiplying leaders at every level of our church? Number 14, continuing efforts for leadership development. Number 15, remember BHAG stands for, if you want to Christianize a big, holy, audacious goals or big, hairy, audacious goals. Uh, but we, we would like to consider and pray about, and again, I'm just planting seeds, but moving or switching to an elder-led congregational rule, church polity. And then also, number 16, the BHAG, by 2024, doubling our equipped helpers in all ministries. Uh, so those are uh, some of the initiatives that we have that we just want to highlight uh, in regards to uh, organization, strengthening our church. And remember I said 2022, in fact, if we're going to have a, a time for you guys to ask questions. If you guys could start setting up mics, please, someone, Josiah or Dave, just put it in the middle like you did before. But remember... Uh, we plan on 2022, we've given it the theme of strengthen, right? We see so much importance here, so much here that we need to work on and develop uh, that we've committed all of 2022 to just really tackle this and focus, focus on this head on. And we want to do that so that we can do the most eternal good to the most people. We want to uh, facilitate and mobilize uh, growth and change that way. Uh, so this time we're going to transition. We've, we've been doing this at the end of these messages, giving a chance for the whole church body. If you have questions about anything I've just said, questions about what you read on here, uh, please don't hesitate to come on up to the microphone and, and ask that question, and we're going to do our best to try and answer that. Also, this is a great time to be involved in growth groups because we've dedicated our growth groups for the next few weeks uh, to be discussing this. Uh, so we're trying to give every avenue we can. We want your feedback. We want to hear what you like, what you don't like, what you don't understand. And we want feedback. Uh, like I said, this plan is, is being held with an open hand. And so that's the value of this time. That's the value of growth groups where you can come in and say, well, I don't understand this. This doesn't quite seem right. Um, and that way we can tweak it. We can adjust it. Again, we want to do the most, the most eternal good to the most people. Uh, so if there's anyone who has a question... I would like to ask that publicly. Um, now is your chance. Are we putting the second mic out there? Is that what we're doing? Nice. So we have two mics. Um, Josiah has the one set up here in the middle. I think Dave's setting one out there for the, the true Baptist, the back row Baptist. <clears throat> okay. So if anyone has any questions, now is the time to to ask those questions. We would appreciate it. All right, go for it, Cameron. I have a question. 
For the number 15, um, how is that different from what we do now? Like, what is the... Sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. So the question is, for number 15, where it says, move to elder-led, congregational rule, church polity, how is that different from what we do now? Um, so can I start preaching, like, a whole other sermon? Like, is that, is that an option right now? That, that is an option. <laughs> In some ways, it's not terribly different from what we do right now. Uh, so, so the Bible... If that's still up there, it is. The Bible differentiates between elders and deacons. And often as churches, what we do is we do this with, with, with deacons. We either unduly uh, put them up to be de facto elders, or we kind of downgrade them to be glorified janitors. And biblically, they're neither. And so uh, our, our deacons have basically been running as elders and deacons. And that leads to burnout. That leads to men trying to do more than they're being called to do. And so what, what we're saying with that is we just want to make sure our elders are truly elders and our deacons are truly elders. Our deacons are truly deacons. We're already and always will be a congregationally ruled church. Right? Elders aren't stand, are in their office having these meetings and coming out saying, this is what we're going to do. But it's congregational rule. The elders set direction. They give vision uh, and Lord willing, the congregation follows that as the scriptures teach, uh, if, as, as long as the elders are in accordance with scripture. Um, but that's, that's the idea. It's not, it's not terribly different than what we're already doing. It's just it's putting things in order and saying, okay, these are what elders are, these are what deacons are, this is what the congregation does. How can we maximize that effectively to multiply disciples? <clears throat> and there's a lot more I could say about that. Um, I'm just trying to plant, plant seeds at this point. Good question. Any other questions? If not, I do want to encourage you anytime, reach out to me or Josiah. We're glad to talk about these things with you. Email us, call us. Again, growth groups are a great place to talk about this. Um, but if there's no questions... I'm going to pray, and we'll call it a day. Remember to check with Rose and Sue for live nativity opportunities, uh, but we'll, let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your church and the scriptures and uh, how it uh, doesn't uh, leave us wondering about some of these things. You've, you've given us clear direction, our Lord, and and your mission for our church, for every church, is to multiply disciples. We want to do that. We want to be as effective as we can with that. And Lord, we, by your grace, so we don't like to hear it or see it, have recognized uh, holes in our ministry, ways that we need to uh, put things into order. And Lord, I just ask that you would give us the grace, the strength uh, to put those things into order, to, to get things right, uh, the structure right so that we can be as effective as we possibly can be on this side of glory uh, for, your, for your namesake. That we know that the church is precious to you. The church is that for which your son uh, shed his blood. Um, that the church is that to which you have given your spirit and your word. Uh, and so, Lord, please, please bless these efforts. Again, if there's, if there's things in our plan, Father, that would go against your word or would make us less effective or even 
do things uh, worse than we're already doing them, Lord, then please, Lord, please intervene. Uh, help us to, to get things where they need to be. And Lord, if, there are, if our plan is on task, if our plan is that, uh, which is in accordance with your word and your will, then Lord, I ask that you would establish our steps and strengthen our hands uh, to, to do the work you've called us to do. We just ask that these, these sermons, and as we think about this and pray about this, that you would do for us what you did in Acts 6, where the word of God greatly increased and disciples greatly increased.